Hello, church. It is, as always, wonderful to be gathered together on the Lord's Day, the day that we come together and get to put a, an extra special emphasis on the impact of, of Christ's resurrection in our lives. We're continuing in the book of Galatians, so we'll be in Galatians chapter 3. For those of you who are following along in your own Bibles, and if you happen to have one of those hardcover Bibles that are scattered around this room, we're going to be on page 914. And if you're newer here, my name is David. I'm the teaching pastor here. Now, as many of you know, I like to spend time outside, and I have small kids. Those two things become increasingly difficult in the wintertime. For those of you who have small kids or have had small kids, you understand this because, okay, this is a bad weekend to use this illustration because it's like springtime right now. But generally, January, February, we as human beings, we can't just walk out the front door and be nice and warm, right? We need warm boots and maybe even snow pants, a nice warm coat. We cannot just walk out there the way that God created us and survive in the winter in Maine. And yet that is often what smaller children will try to do. I took my daughter ice fishing for the first time a few weeks ago. And I was really excited. It was seven degrees that morning. So, so it was kind of a trial by frost. And, you know, I, I set her up for success, though. She had a nice base layer on. I took one of those amazing, if you haven't used these before, those sticky hand warmers. They're great if you're in a deer stand or, you know, you're, put them on your kids while they're sleeping while camping. You just put it on. I think that was a John Robertson trick, actually, that John taught me that. Uh, the stick-on hand warmers. I put one of those on her back. I put another layer over that. Then she had, uh, she had a bazillion layers. I mean, she could probably barely move. All the layers that I put on her, double-layered socks, nice warm boots, a nice hat. We had a nice little hub to fish out of with a wood stove in it. I mean, we were set, okay? But she didn't go into the nice little warm shelter. She laid in water <laughs> and then took her gloves off. Well, she, and, and so while I'm trying to fix her gloves, that's when the first trap went, and pulled the fish up, and then she wanted to touch the fish, so she took her inner layer of gloves off so she could touch the fish. And then a few minutes after that, it, it all went down. She, she was cold, she was screaming, she was crying. There was nothing we could do. I had to bring her home. Now, we're going to kind of see that today with what Paul speaks to in Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. And that in Christ, they had been given everything that they had needed. Everything. And yet the Galatians were falling back to something that didn't work. They had been given all the blessing they could imagine in Christ, and yet they were turning back to something that actually brought a curse. Right, I gave Ellsworth all of the clothing that she needed to be warm and succeed. Right, but she took it off and experienced the cold. So kind of the, the, the main point today, I'm going to phrase it as a question, is if Jesus came, if Jesus became cursed so we could be blessed, why would we take up the curse again? If Jesus came and became cursed so that we could be blessed, why would we take up the curse again? So please turn with me to Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. 
The Apostle Paul writes, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Here the Apostle Paul uses this very emphatic, maybe even angered colloquial language to say, guys, what is going on? What has happened? And he says that, that Christ was publicly portrayed before their eyes as crucified. That's interesting because Galatia is far away from Jerusalem. The people in the church of Galatia, they were not around when Jesus was actually crucified on the cross. But they did receive the gospel. The message of Christ crucified was given to them. They believed in that message and their eyes were opened and they saw, yes, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one to trust. That had been revealed to them. And yet they were turning away from him. Verses 2 through 5. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Paul essentially asks them the question. He says, so how did you receive the Holy Spirit? How did the Holy Spirit come into your lives? As we see in the New Testament, when someone puts their trust in Jesus, when they believe in the saving power of Jesus Christ, they receive the very Spirit of God who dwells in them. We see that very clearly in the book of Acts. Happened to first the Jews, and then the Samaritans, and then even the Gentiles. That they received the gospel message and then received the Holy Spirit. And Paul looks at this church, that, the, that God has been working and the Holy Spirit has been active and present in this church. And he says, well, how did you receive the Holy Spirit? Well, of course it was through faith. You think that was meaningless? That God, because you believed in him, he now dwells in you to help you in your Christian walk. And you think, oh, that's actually all out the window now. It's only me and my own effort. It's, it's a matter of the flesh, your own pure human effort. That's how you're going to please God now. The Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit was just worthless. And in verse 4, he basically says, well, if that's the case, all that suffering you've done for the name of Christ is worthless. You've experienced hardships for the name of Jesus, but if you've abandoned Jesus, well, guess what? That is, that's worthless. Does God work among you because you play by the rules, because you follow the law, because you were circumcised? Or does he work among you because you trust him? That, that miracles are a matter of faith. They are not something that, that's deserved. In James chapter 5, we see that, the, that people can be healed by a prayer of faith. It doesn't say a prayer of works. Right? Miracles are undeserved. It's not something we can control by our behavior. And you know, don't we often act that way? We can get a little bit entitled. We say, God, I've been so good to you. Can you really do this? Can you really show up in this major way in my life? Can you make this, this health problem go away or this financial problem go away? 
And man, God does answer prayer. He is powerful, but we often come with this sense of entitlement that it's a matter of works, but it isn't. It's a matter of faith and his will to do amazing things among his people. Continuing on in verses 6 through 9, he says, Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So Paul's going back to Abraham. He's going back to the forefather of Israel as an example. And that even with Abraham, all the way back there, his relationship with God, the fact that he was right with God, was all because he had faith in God. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he's saying something very radical, especially in verse 7. Paul's making the point that those who are the true descendants of Abraham, those, are the, those who are the true heirs of Abraham, that get to inherit his blessings, are those who have faith, not those who try to live by works. This would have been an extremely radical thing for a Jewish Christian in the first century to hear. And yet, it's very much in keeping with the original promise that was given to Abraham. The, the good news that God revealed to Abraham that he would bless all nations through his descendants. In you shall all the nations be blessed. It was God's plan from the beginning. And a few weeks ago, we covered Ephesians chapter 2, and we delved deep into it in a growth group. That for those of us who are in Christ, we are recipients of the promises. We are descendants of Abraham as a matter of faith, not a matter of works. Because blessing from God has always been a matter of faith. Blessing from God has always been a matter of faith. God had already given Abraham the, the promise. God already told Abraham, hey, this is all the amazing stuff that I'm going to do in and through you. And then Abraham believed. He had faith. His faith did not earn it. God had already promised it. Faith says, I trust you. I will walk with you. Now, it is, it is worth noting, as we're talking about Abraham having faith and how that faith was counted to him as righteousness. James, the Apostle James, says something that some people think is contradictory in James chapter 2. Because he says that, well, no, Abraham was justified by faith and works. Some of you are familiar with that passage. And sometimes people pit those two passages against each other, like, hey, what's going on here? In James chapter 2, verse 26, he says, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. But if we actually read the verses around it, if we go to the beginning of chapter 2, James is making the same point that Paul is making. 
that our faith in Christ affects our behavior. It is the center point of the Christian life, is our faith in Christ. Everything else flows from faith. James is just kind of taking that in a different direction than Paul is in two different scenarios they had in two different churches. But Paul is actually going to make the same case later in the book of Galatians. He's going to say, look, you put your trust in Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit begins to bear fruit in your life. We're going to see that near the end of the book. I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's continue on in verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The law actually brings a curse. The law brings a curse. It brings misfortune. It brings punishment. He's already made the point that those who trust God are declared to be right with him. They are justified. The law does the exact opposite. Because the law produces a standard. And it's a standard we don't live up to. No one can follow the law perfectly. And so if the law is the place where we ground the fact that we are right with God because we abide by the law, it betrays us. It becomes a curse to us because we cannot live up to the standards. And he quotes here, Deuteronomy 27, 26. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. The law requires our absolute obedience if the law is how we are made right with God. But as he's already made the point for Abraham, the law wasn't how he became right with God. The law actually wasn't around yet. He believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And we look in the Old Testament, and we see figures like King David, who absolutely loved the law of God. He benefited greatly from it, because guess what? It is from God. It was for the good of his people. But at the end of the day, and you, you see this in the Psalms, you see this in his life, he realized he was a screw-up. Right? He realized that he could not hit the mark. David had made a lot of mistakes. He was a sinner. And so ultimately we see in the writings in the life of King David is that he realized that he needed this thing called mercy. He needed mercy. That based on the law, he said the law is good on, he meditated on it every night. But he didn't match up to it. He didn't fully abide by it. And he knew that he needed mercy. He didn't need God to forgive him. And that's what he put his trust in. Did he know the gospel the way we have it presented to us? No, but he trusted that God was going to somehow make this right because he saw the character of God. 
And he looked at the law and he said, I need God's help and I believe that he will help me. There's a great example of this in a parable that Jesus gives in Luke chapter 18. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus gives a story of two different people that go up to the temple to pray. There's a Pharisee and a tax collector. And and when you read the prayer of the Pharisee, I encourage you to, to, on your own time, go to Luke chapter 18. This Pharisee's prayer is essentially a list of the good things that he does and a prayer of thanksgiving where he says, thank you that I'm not like this awful tax collector over there. But for the Pharisee, he, he thought he was right with God because of the things that he did and because of the kind of person he was. He doesn't come to God needy. He comes to God saying, this is what I've done. Look how great I am. Also, thank you that I'm not like that guy. And yet in the parable that Jesus gives, the the tax collector at a distance, he beats his chest. He cries out, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. The tax collector, he knew that he had cheated people. He he knew that, that he was far from God. And he cries out for God to give him mercy. And Jesus says something really interesting in Luke 18, verse 14. He says, I tell you, that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. He went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the way it has always worked to have a right relationship with God and to be right in his eyes is not to hit the mark because none of us can hit the mark, but rather is to appeal to God's mercy and to trust him. Paul quotes Habakkuk 2, 4, behold, or part of it, behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not right within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. The righteous shall live by his faith. That we are declared to be right by God when we put our trust in him. It's not because of what we have done. We're in trouble because we don't live up to God's standard. We need his mercy. And the, the good news that we proclaim here, and Christians proclaim around the world, is that God actually provided the mercy that we need. He provided the mercy that we need. That Christ took the curse. That God himself came down in human form. He lived a perfect life and he offered himself on the cross as the perfect sacrifice. The perfect payment for our sins. Colossians 2.14 says that he actually nailed our debt to the cross. With all of its requirements. That if we put our trust in Jesus and who he is and what he has done, we are forgiven. We are made right with God. Not because we have lived by the letter of the law, but rather because we have found mercy. Isaiah 53, 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. The good news is that Christ carried the curse that we deserved. 
He did not deserve it. He took it upon himself so that we who deserved it can be forgiven and freed and experience life. And all of this goes back to that promise given to Abraham, that little hint of the gospel, that through Abraham and his descendants, all the nations would be blessed. And if we put our trust in Christ, we receive the Holy Spirit. And we'll see through the book of Galatians the effect that that has in the Christian life. I want you to imagine for a moment that your car is dead on the side of the road. Except it's not just dead. It's not just like, well, something's wrong. We'll figure it out. But you have totaled your car. It's, it's flipped over in the ditch. There's smoke coming out of it. It's a mess. And someone comes along, and they offer to pick you up and take you to where you need to go. Your car totaled in the ditch, absolutely a mess. This guy says, yeah, I can take you to where you need to go. It's going to be a big inconvenience to me, but I don't care. I'm going to incur that annoyance and that difficulty to take you wherever you need to go. Well, what choice do you have? It's a very cold day. You get back into your car, you aren't going to be able to make it to your destination. If you are trying to walk, you aren't going to be able to make it to your destination. And so you have a choice. You can trust in your own ability that has failed, or you can trust the driver. You can get into the car, and this driver will take you to your destination. And so you get into the car. That's, that's the good option for you. And it's a warm car. It's a nice car. There's good music playing on the radio. The driver is a trustworthy person. You know this person in the community. You know that you're going to get to your destination. And then you jump out of the car and say, yeah, I've got it from here. Does that make sense? No, you'd have to be nuts to do that. And that this is your one option to get to your destination. It's not your own effort. It's the work of this other person, and yet you decide, you know what, I'm going to rely on my own effort to get to my destination. You jump out of the car. That's, that's what we do when we throw away grace and say, no, I'm going to become right with God by my adherence to the law by my moral perfection of my own effort, that's how I'm going to become right with God. If we do that as Christians, we're like the person who gets into the car and then jumps out the window. If Jesus became cursed so we could be blessed, why would we take up the curse again? I, I bet many of us in this room have experienced the frustration of watching someone we love who is in the pursuit of good, they're, you can tell they're trying to make their life better, but they keep returning to that which is killing them. I, I, many of us in this room have had the, the tragic and just heart-wrenching experience of loving an addict, right? 
And you see in their life there's pain, that there's something that they're trying to heal, something they're trying to escape, and yet they continually turn to the one thing that is just making the problem worse, a substance that's killing their body, killing their relationships. It's a very painful experience. Many of us have gone through that and are going through that. Or maybe you've had a friend who becomes the worst possible person when they start dating so-and-so. Right? You're hanging out with this person. They're your buddy. You do everything together. And then they start dating that person, and you can barely get in contact with them. They don't give you the time of day. They treat you like garbage. They become a different person. And then they finally break up, and you go, phew. Right? Glad that's over. And then two months later, they get back together, and you just are like, what? Right? Like two months ago, you showed up on my door crying about how she's crazy and you realize you, you've made a mistake and you want to spend more time with the guys. And now you've gone right back into that. I think, I think we can probably relate to, to these situations, these kind of situations. And, and that's the kind of position that God is in. Right? He's provided that which gives us life. And yet there's something in our human hearts that tends to turn to the law, and that brings a curse. That's our relationship with dead works. For the Jew, adherence to the law became, unfortunately, a means of finding blessing. And that kind of seems to work on the surface, right? Is because if you live by God's ways, generally speaking, that's, that's going to be better for you. God's ways are good. But that doesn't fix this, the core problem. The deeper problem remains. We live in an evil-filled world. None are truly righteous. All of us right, have to be accountable for the things that we have done to one another. The things that we've done to this world around us. We live in a world where hurt people hurt people. It is a mess because of sin. Some people come to terms with this and some don't. You can be like the Pharisee. The Pharisee just kept thinking that he was right with God because of what he did. He doubled down on it. Or you can realize that you can't please God with your own effort. And I would imagine most of us in this room have come to that point in one way or another. But then when we come to that point, there are still two different decisions. We can trust in God, or we can quit. I think, sadly, some of us may have chosen this option at one point in our life or another, where we saw, you know what, I just can't do this Christianity thing anymore. I can't do this religion thing. I feel like no matter what I do, I am just not good enough, and it is just making me sick and tired and exhausted. I'm done. Reasonable. Very reasonable. Because we are not meant to live under legalism. We're not meant to live under the law. We're meant to live under grace. Some become exhausted and quit. Some trust in God's mercy, like the tax collector. It would be ridiculous for me to crawl back into that car that's flipped up over on the side of the road and clutch the steering wheel and just say, I'm going to make it. I'm going to get to my destination. 
It would be foolish to try to walk it on my own. And so I can either give up the journey or I can get in the car with Jesus. I can get in the car with Jesus. Now, if I get in that car, am I going to get to my final destination? Absolutely. Am I the one doing it? No. I'm not the one doing it, but is it going to change me? You betcha. Have you ever ridden in a car with someone for a long period of time? Maybe day after day after day after day, carpooling to work or to school, right? The people around you influence you. Right? And then that's kind of how the Christian life works, is yes, the core of our faith is trusting God. He is the one who can get us somewhere we can never get on our own. But does that process change us and lead us into good works? Absolutely, it does. Absolutely. So the question I believe we should ask ourselves today is, are we living by trust or are we living by our own effort? Are we living by trust in God, trust in his mercy, or are we living by our own effort? I, I believe if, if we're leaning into faith, we will be open about our failures. There's this thing in the Bible called confession, right? And that word has baggage, I'm sure, for many of you, especially uh, with your various religious backgrounds, but really the heart of confession is just agreeing with God. That we look at our sin, we look at our lives, we say, yeah, God, I've missed the mark. I have failed. But I also trust that I'm forgiven. Those are the two parts of confession, in agreeing with God. And confession at its core is a symptom of trust. Because if we trust God... That he deals with our sins, certainly we'll want to bring them to him. We'll want to wage war against them. 1 John 1 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we can walk away confident that we are forgiven because it's not a matter of our own effort. Confession should not be, Here are all the things I've done wrong. Great, I'm going to go do better. So maybe I'll hit the mark this time. But rather it is going, Lord, my, I've made a mess. I know you can make it better. I want to come to the doctor. Yeah, you're right. These things are broken. They are horrible. Thank you. Please forgive me. If faith is at the center, that will lead to confession and repentance and will continue upward. Not as a matter of works. Because we aren't trying to earn anything. But it's just the trajectory of the Christian life, of a life that is fueled by faith. But if we're living by our own effort, if we're living by our own flesh, I think like the Pharisees, we will often end up creating excuses and exceptions to avoid addressing our failures. Because we, we desperately, internally, will want to think that we have hit the mark. And so we will lie to ourselves and we also lie to others. We'll create this wonderful, false, holy facade to everyone else that, man, I'm just the model Christian and I have it all together. And it's a lie. 
And we delude ourselves into thinking that we don't need God's mercy, we don't need his grace. And what I think that often produces, I've noticed this in my own life, is internally one can be racked with guilt and shame, which is not where God wants you. Right? Internally be racked with guilt and shame, and externally just be dripping with arrogance. That, that's what living by our own efforts, living by the flesh, living by the law, that's what it does to us. And in doing so, we take the curse back on ourselves. I just read 1 John 1, 9, and it's interesting, verses 8 and 10 around it say this, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. This is why I believe confession is a piece of this puzzle. A product of faith. Because in doing so, we, we agree with God and what he has said about our sin. But we also agree what he has said about our sin in and through Christ Jesus that we are forgiven. If Jesus became cursed so that we could be blessed, why would we take up the curse again? If you have always thought that following God was a matter of your own effort, to keep the law, follow the rules, stay in line, and you want to experience the blessing of Christ, you're hearing about this stuff called grace and mercy, and that seems foreign to you, or there's a tension there, and I would love to talk to you. I would love to. Let's, let's work through that. Let's ask questions. And I think there's a challenge for all of us in this room to return to faith and remain as people of faith. Not like the Galatian church to fall back into a reliance on the law. And I believe that confession is an integral part of us choosing faith over our own effort. It's a symptom And certainly the elders and pastors and so many faithful people here would certainly be willing to hear your confessions. Ideally, I think it's great to have a, a brother and sister in Christ you can trust, you can have that open relationship with on a, on a regular basis, but if you don't have that in your life, certainly the, the elders and pastors here at this church would love to hear that and to be ministers of grace in your life to remind you of what Christ has already done for you. It's, it's my hope that, that more and more it becomes a place of openness because grace is at the center, not works. And when it's about, what's about the law, when it's about works, we just all start pretending. Because none of us can hit the mark. And so when we start saying, well, no, you all need to hit the mark, we just start pretending because we're good at that. And I'm really good at pretending. I don't know about you guys. That's not the gospel. That's not the message of faith. That's not, that's not Abraham. That's not David. That's not Paul. That's not what's been handed down to us. Let us be people of faith. And may that fuel and empower our Christian lives. Let's pray.
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are holy. And Lord, we live in a fallen world, and I have contributed to that world with my sin. My selfishness, my lust. The list goes on, Lord. Thank you that you have provided the access that I could never achieve on my own. You provide a path to our destination that is not by our works. I pray you would solidify that in us. I pray in this space you would call people to put their trust in the gospel. Lay aside dead works. Please do a mighty work among us. In the powerful name of Jesus, I pray.